This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. All right, guys, welcome back to the MVM show. I'm Titus with my co-host, Thomas. What's going on, guys? And we also got my co-host, Travis, here today. I don't know about co I thought that was a salmon. <laughs> <laughs> so we got, we're, we're proud to bring and happy to bring with you Jeff, um, who's become starting to become a good acquaintance and hopefully continues to turn into a friend. Uh, he's a regional director for Delta Waterfowl, and we just, guys, had our, I don't know, maybe fifth meeting tonight. Started a chapter out here in the grasslands of California, and uh, I think we're the third, are we the third chapter in California? They just came several months ago. I'm not, well, we'll let get Jeff get into that. Anyways, I appreciate you guys for being here today and listening and tuning in. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this. We're going to go over several topics, not just about Delta waterfowl and the conservation side of things, but we want to deep dive into some swan hunting and some stuff like that. So we'll dig in here in a minute. Before we do, I'm going to uh, just go ahead and put out there, guys, that if you want to follow us on Instagram or Facebook, just check us out at Mid-Valley Mercenaries. Also, um, if you could, it means a ton to us, and you guys are always so gracious to help us out with everything, but could you please go ahead and uh, give us a rating on iTunes and give us a review and tell us what you like. If you don't like it, if you do like it, uh, whatever you think about it. Um, I'm just looking for my phone and realizing that it's not on me. Can somebody grab it for me, please, Travis? Um, I want to. I do want to start doing this. I'm going to start reading um, your guys' reviews and what you guys are saying to kind of give a little bit of a shout-out and an appreciation for you guys going ahead and giving us a review. So I appreciate that once again, and we're going to get right going in this. Check, if you guys like watching duck hunting and YouTube videos, go ahead and check us out on YouTube, Mid-Valley Mercenaries as well. But uh, let me go ahead real quick, before we get started, uh, I want to go ahead and read a couple of these reviews just to say thank you guys for uh, saying something. Uh, we'll start the the very bottom and we'll kind of work our way up the next couple podcasts. But uh, the first one's uh, from Hans Brown 28 He said, awesome podcast. He gave us five stars. He said, nice job. Love hearing the stories. Almost felt like I was sitting there with you guys just talking. Can't wait for more episodes. So, Hans, um, I actually know who he is. I appreciate you, man, for writing that up. We thank you for that. Also, and we'll just read this one last. We'll get it started into the podcast. Nathaniel Holmes, uh, you put on, it's great. This is great. I love it. It's my new favorite podcast. So, thank you guys for doing that. And we'll get to the others later on, some future podcasts. But, Jeff, go yeah, ahead sure. and introduce yourself to us and... Tell us uh, what you are got going on with Delta Waterfowl, and 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 to make an announcement, make him more nervous as he already is. And it's nice having an in guest and not doing it over the phone. We can see each other face to face. This is his first podcast, so we're Very pretty first excited. one. You betcha. <laughs> so what do you got going on, Jeff? You know what? I'm just honored to be here with you guys tonight. I've enjoyed getting to know 
the three of you as well as your other chapter members and and others here in California. I've been with Delta Waterfowl now as an employee for darn near two years. I started in October of 2017, and prior to that, I was the chairman of the Willard Peak chapter in Brigham City, Utah. So I've been around Delta Waterfowl as a volunteer since 2010, and am really honored that I was offered the opportunity to help build Delta Waterfowl here in the Pacific Flyway, and which led me to meet these gentlemen and Titus and I, we actually met at the ISE show in Sacramento yeah, earlier this yeah. year. and uh, Wait, he, that, was ge- that was February. That was February. February, okay. Yeah, no, actually it was January. It was January. It was January, January yeah. right? Uh, mid, yeah, right in that mm-hmm. time frame. Yeah, he came walking by and wanted to do a little video with me, and he was already a Delta Waterfowl member but didn't know some of the things that I shared in the quick video that he put me on the spot to do. And and from <laughs> that way, well. <laughs> I must have, doggone it, here we sit. <laughs> but uh, we're tickled pink. The Grasslands chapter that he's the chairman for is working on putting together a, a banquet in early October, and we're looking really forward to that and working together on that. So, so Jeff, tell us, um, as far as on the conservation side, I'm, I'm sure we can dig in this like a long ways, but... What what is what's going on with Delta Waterfowl right now? The big things like what's kind of the main thing? I know I seen some pictures that you had. You guys, I don't want to get into that yet. Let's save the um the dragging part for the nest a little bit later. But it's the big picture. What what do you guys see and what what do you got going on? You know what? As far as the big picture when it comes to Delta Waterfowl, as um, a lot of folks out here in the West, they seem to think that Delta Waterfowl is a, a Southern or Eastern organization, but in reality we uh, through the programs that we have, we affect all four flyways. Delta Waterfowl's uh, mission statement is to produce more ducks and secure the future of waterfowl hunting. So we're a true waterfowl hunting organization. We're in the corner of waterfowl hunters anytime, any place that they face a challenge. In fact, uh, when will it be? Wednesday. Wednesday I'll be meeting up with a gentleman up in Reading to talk about the lower Klamath Falls and the problems that we're facing up there. And so Delta Waterfowl will get involved anytime, any place with waterfowl hunters when the traditions that we face are threatened. Now, on the conservation side of things, Delta Waterfowl focuses largely and primarily, if you will, on the nesting habitat mm-hmm. uh, where then I'll say 90% of the ducks in all four flyways are raised, which is in the prairie pothole region in, of the U.S. and in Canada. And so we have some banding maps that show where birds have been harvested that are um, hatched in those territories. Mm -hmm. A lot of folks, especially here in California, as I've met them over the last couple of years, are really intrigued with our investments, if you will, in predator management Mm -hmm. and with the hen houses in in producing more mallards for all four flyways. And uh, the other thing that folks really love is the incredible investment that we make in our future biologists and whatnot. So we will hire, if you will, and provide scholarships for for folks who are training to be in the wildlife sciences in the future for their professions. And they get to come and do some of their projects, if you will, with Delta Waterfowl and throughout the country, not just in the Prairie Pothole region, but throughout the country to be able to help us learn more about the ducks that we all enjoy and the and the troubles that they face. Each year, Delta Waterfowl puts out a research pro, uh, research paper, excuse me, and within that, it lists all of the different things that our board of directors has agreed to invest in for the year. And so for this year in 2019, something folks here in California will be tickled pink to hear is that not only is the CWA uh, interested and in investing in trying to improve bag limits for pintails, but so is Delta Waterfowl. Oh, really? You betcha, you're talking absolutely. talking about from the one? From they, one up to, to even me. three per, oh, really? per instance so or even think, more. So you don't think we're stuck at one? I, I don't. In fact, the long-term averages, if you were to look when the population estimates are released, the long-term ad- estimates for, or the long-term average for pintails is in the 5 million, 5 million mm-hmm. bird range, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. But what we've learned is since that was set years and years and years ago, pintails now are nesting not only in grasses, up, you know, grass habitat up in Canada, but they're actually nesting in the stubble fields. Hmm. Okay, because Here now in up, California. In, up in, in, in Canada, Canada, actually. Okay. You betcha. Yeah, because where I'm from in Utah, we get a tremendous amount of pintails as well, mm-hmm. and we're faced with the same thing you are, which is one pintail. Oh, really? I remember two years ago, 
when we had one pintail uh, mm-hmm. the last time. Shucks, I only shot one pintail that whole darn year because every time I had a chance to pull the trigger, I was going to drop the second one, and I just don't want to risk that that trouble. Right, right. And uh, but what we found through studies so far up in Canada is that pintails are kind of a 50-50 split between whether they want to nest in the grass, the natural grasses up there in the marshlands, or if they're actually in the uplands, uh, or if they're going out and nesting in the no-till uh, grain fields mm-hmm. that they now have with the no-till um, practices that they've got up there now, because they're no longer digging under their stubble. They're just going right back over the top and planting in the stubble that was left from last year. So, Which would be a good thing, right? It's great for the farmers. It's yeah. costing them less money, so it's giving them a better return on investment. But the problem is is that if predators, natural predators like raccoons, ravens, other things Which are the, not— are Raccoons are the worst, I guess, absolutely. right? Absolutely. Raccoons are by far the worst. And I didn't know that until I read that the other day. Absolutely. Yep. If the, if the nests and the hens themselves are not being destroyed, speaking of pintails, by— um, by these natural predators, then the big green predator we call John Deere is going to wipe them out out there in the fields. And well, so, can we can we touch on that a little bit more? Because I was thinking, you know, here in California, one of the things is is I guess it's probably all around the United States is, and I'm in ag myself, so I know a little bit. Like it's it's let's get the next crop in, let's do that. But I keep hearing about this no-till thing, which doesn't. I don't think that's something that we have here because, I mean, it's like as soon as the crop is over with. They're tilling it under, and there is no food. So I'm trying to figure out if you can maybe explain a little bit more about the no-till because, to me, the feed would still be on top, right? Yes, so the feed's still going to be on top. Which would uh, mean they could still feed, right? Yeah, yeah, they're still going to be able to feed. But you got to consider, too, that by the time the ducks are getting back there to nest, they've already harvested their crop, and then the fall migration goes over the top of them. They're going to eat. And then the spring migration is going to come back for nesting, and anything that's left at that point, which is after winter, so a lot of it's going to be, you know, destroyed by that point in time. So there's not going to be a ton of food there, but it's still wonderful nesting cover. Mm -hmm. But it's kind of sparse if you think about it. You know, you being in agriculture, and I grew up in a in an agricultural home as well. My father managed a co-op, and so I spent a lot of time out in the fields with him and with ranchers. And uh, that grain stubble is not very tall. And so those darn hen pintails are sticking out like a sore thumb. Mm. So what this brings us back around to is these long-term averages that were set years ago at well over 5 million birds is not a sustainable number anymore, or at least that's what we think. And so we're striving to prove that through research studies that we have going on right now. And so what we're hoping to be able to come back and share with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service is that maybe our long-term average needs to be closer to 2 or 3 million and then base our bag limits off of that two to three million instead of the five million that our bag limits are now being based off of. Does that make sense? Totally makes total sense. I so I mean, just curious. I know you can't you don't make the calls and all that stuff, but I mean, do you see next year? Because it, it kind of like you said, it went from two to one, back to two last year, and now it's back to one again. I mean, do you see it next year bumping up or in three years, five years? I I know it's speculation, but... You know, I would speculate and say it's more of a three- to five-year model. To get back to two. Absolutely. You know, the CWA is also working on this. Now everyone will know that uh, that listens to your podcast. The Delta Waterfowl is in the corner of this as well. Mm -hmm. Uh, Folks are welcome to shoot me an email. I can forward them uh, a copy of our research report that we have that gives a description of all the things that we're... Yeah, put it out there um, if you want ...investing in. You betcha. So my email address is jadams at deltawaterfowl.org, and I'd be happy to forward that on to you because through that you'll see some of the drone studies that we're doing. We've got a, a massive bluebill study that's going on, and in fact, as we talk here in a minute about the, the nest dragging that I was able to participate in with other regional directors and other uh, employees of Delta Waterfowl a couple of weeks ago, uh, the field that we drug in North Dakota is what was referred to as a super field, it had uh, blue-winged mallards, gadwall, shovelers, and bl- and uh, lesser scop nesting mm-hmm. in that field. And we're act- we actually got a research student who is pulling eggs from nests there and checking for certain diseases, if you will, that are wiping out our lesser scop population, which through that and then uh, canvasback studies and others, you know, we've we've really got some valuable research going on that could help to 
increase our numbers in different divers and whatnot that some of us, like myself, really look forward to every year. You mentioned something a little earlier. Um, is Delta Waterfowl at all, um, do they have some sort of predator management in in play? Like, is that something you guys are a part of, or you just encourage it, or what? Oh, no, we're absolutely full-blown into it. In fact, we have, if I'm not mistaken, 27 sites as of this year that we have full-blown predator management going on. Now, when when you're doing that, what, like, how, how is that all working? Is this all public land? Is this people coming to Delta wanting you guys to help them, or is it just volunteers? So what we have is uh, some of, uh, the majority of this, if not all of it, is on private lands, and we're doing this in the Prairie Pothole region, okay? Um, in fact, the super field I mentioned that we uh, drug for nests a couple weeks ago was one of the predator management blocks. And so the, the sizes of these fields are varying, if you will. Some of them are a quarter section, a half section, three-quarter, or even a full section. And then what they'll do is we'll hire a professional trapper who will go out there and trap that section or half section, whatever it may be. But then we also have a neighboring piece of land that is not trapped. And then we'll have graduate students and technicians that will be assigned to that particular project to go in and keep track of the nest success on both sections of land and then compare them to be able to see just how much better, as we have found, the trapped block produces ducks. Okay, and so we're we're not just picking any random piece of land. We're actually p- picking super productive areas that, if I recall the numbers correctly, have got 50 to 100 nests uh, per mile, if I recall correctly. Mm-hmm. And I don't have my notes in front of me, but uh, some of these figures were shared with us when we were in our training meetings a couple of weeks ago. And it was just, it was mind-boggling. It was incredible to That's see amazing. this. Yeah, it was amazing as we stepped into this field. I mean, we were not... 15 yards, Mm -hmm. per se, from the corner of this field where two dirt roads, two gravel roads intersect. And right there was a mallard nest, and five feet away was a gadwall nest. That's awesome. They were just that close to each other. We hadn't even started dragging the chains. It was insane. So what's your opinion on, you know, people listening doing that locally? I mean, because we have a lot of refugees here. We have birds that stay here, you know, year-round. You know, what do you... I know it's different everywhere. You know, it's different in California as it is back east or, you know, something like that. But is that something that we should be thinking about ourselves locally? You know what? Uh, It's definitely something that I have heard from long-term Delta Waterfowl members who live in California that they love and support is this predator management program. We're the only waterfowl conservation organization that's hit this one hard and done major studies with it and continues to invest in it. Uh, do I personally see an absolute need for that here in California? Yes. Do I think that your political climate will allow it? Uh, not, not as openly, if you will, as mm-hmm. they do in North Dakota and up right. in the other prairies, part of the prairies. But do I personally believe that a effective predator management program would do tremendous results for your nesting success here? Absolutely. Can you imagine, I, I think we're all in the room, either current CWA members or we have been CWA members, and we were probably all aware that they, and, and many of your listeners are aware that they have an egg salvage program. I was looking at the latest magazine uh, over the weekend, and I believe roughly in 2018 they had 1,560 ducks that they saved through the egg salvage program, which if anybody doesn't know what that is, they go out and they'll drag fields that are about to be harvested in areas I'd imagine that they have a cooperative agreement with landowners such as we do with predator management and they'll find these nests and they'll gather the eggs take them back to uh, an incubator per se raise those and turn them back to the wild which is wonderful and it's one of the great programs that CWA has that they hang their hat on Um, which is is that the same thing you were doing the the nest dragging or the so the nest dragging is the same uh, some of the net, some of the fields that they have here are, say, maybe it's alfalfa that's about to be uh, hmm. harvested or, or a wheat field that's about to be harvested. So they have to drag them here by hand 
whereas in the prairies it is massive grasslands if you will mm-hmm. right with huge conservation pictures, yeah. conservation easements and whatnot on it so we're able to use four-wheelers and just pay darn close attention because those those hens will will jump just before that chain or the four-wheeler goes over the top of okay, them. Okay, that's what I was going to ask you is yeah. how you're known where that – so it's all about the hen. It so, is. So possibly there could be, the hen could be gone and you would never know. Just exactly. If, if the hen's gone, and then you're not going to know the nest is there. Mm-hmm. The cool thing we learned and a lot of people ask is if you're pulling this heavy chain with – because this chain is, is a good – I mean it's a good thick chain, and then it has additional – lengths about a foot long of smaller chains that are screwed on and dangle off of it so they make noise and rattle through the through the grass but this process does not destroy eggs as that chain goes across the nest because the grass is so tall and healthy that it lays right over the top of the nest as the chain goes Mm -hmm. over the top so there's there's no damage from the chain being done to the nest so uh, many, many times in this huge field. We only did one drag down and one drag back, in, and it took us about two and a half hours. The field wow. was so big, and we found so many nests, wow. many of which were already marked, and so we then had to stop and, and let the graduate student get their numbers off of the eggs and check them, candle them, and, and everything. But uh, one of the unique things we learned, which might interest you gentlemen as well as your your listeners, is that blueing till have a habit of actually ducking under that chain just just hunkering <laughs> down on top of their of their <laughs> nests and letting that bugger go right over the top of them so uh, blueing till which can be they don't tougher. know but that's hurting them yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, blueing till can be uh, a little bit tougher bird to, to yeah figure out huh that's awesome so every egg every nest that you find every egg is being taken off and and incubated, or so, are no. you just marking? So we actually do not do an incubation program within Delta Waterfowl. CWA okay. is the only one that I'm aware gotcha. of that does that. Which is not necessary. I mean, well, what if they're harvesting it? Though, how you guys they wait for the harvest? So our our predator management areas are in grass fields that are not being harvested. Oh, okay. Yeah, these are this is this is wild grass fields, if you will, that would be more for grazing, and uh, and then there's some CRP as well because there's still some CRP fields that exist back there in the Midwest, quite a bit of it. Um, so CWA is the is the only organization that I'm aware of that has a, an incubation program still. In the early 1930s, when James Ford Bell purchased a portion of the Delta Marsh up in Manitoba, this was something that he did start in the early days, if you will, of, of Delta, Delta Waterfowl. Uh, but they discovered as time went on that it, it wasn't working so well up there. And so they abandoned the incubation process and whatnot. So as far as Delta Waterfowl, when we're out there with our students and our biologists dragging these fields, we're actually looking for nest success figures, if you will. You know, how many how many of these – so we stumble onto a, a nest – and then the mom naturally flushes. We're able to tell what species it is by the mom that flushes. And then they'll take the eggs and put them up and rotate them and take a look and uh, see what stage they're at, you know, how old they are. We saw eggs a couple of weeks ago that was anywhere from a couple days uh, into incubation to a, a nest of a blue-winged till that was two days away from hatching. It was it was spectacular wow. to see the the different stages of the embryos. Wow, so it was really cool. And so they put the nest back together. We'll we'll pull the down and everything from the nest, insulate the the eggs, and then we'll actually uh, put a marker on it, if you will, with a couple of the of the sticks of native vegetation, so that when we come through the next week, we can physically see on each nest because we'll also mark them with with sticks if you will so that we know exactly where the the graduate student and technician know exactly where they were and they'll check them every week and all the way through through hatching and then keep track uh perfect documentation if you will so we know which nests were uh attacked by predators and then others that actually Mm. succeeded Mm. so it's it's amazing to see that's got to be a crazy experience to see that yeah, that'd be that'd be really fun. It, I've seen the pictures on your uh, Instagram, and and can you give your Instagram too if anybody wants to kind of go check these pictures out? Yeah, I believe my Instagram is Jeff Okay, 
So guys, if you want, if that's okay, you oh, guys, yeah. you guys want to go check that out. He's got some really cool pictures on there. I never even actually heard of that before. Not even when I did, I was like, well, how are they finding the nest? But that makes sense that the hen's jumping. So, um, let's uh, go right into um the hen houses. Okay. Can you can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? That's one of the things that drew me when I walked by the Delta Waterfowl deal there at the expo when I seen that because that was actually whoever did that taxidermy work was pretty neat it was like three three or four if you watch the channel you've seen it on the video but it was like three or is it three or four chicks or yeah, chicks there's ducklings act, I yeah, mean there's actually two ducklings in there with the mother hen two and a mother, yep. yeah and it was like wow that was really neat and the setup how long does it take to build one of those and can you explain the process and you betcha so Delta Waterfowl uh, over the years has experimented with different man-made nesting structures. We're all familiar with wood duck boxes, and they work just incredibly well. But we wanted to find something that would work to help mallard production. And so multiple different nesting structures were built, and we eventually, uh, through trial and error, came up with the one that we have now on our website that anyone can go on and download plans and build and put out into your marshlands if you wanted to try to help the local mallards to have a better nest success. Um, so within Delta Waterfowl, ourselves, as far as employees go, we have built and installed upwards of 8,000 of these. Um, they get put into areas where there are tremendous mall mallard populations nesting. And then our chapters also have the ability or option, if you will, with the, the Waterfowl Heritage Fund that they get to invest 15 to 25% of the net funds that they raise at their banquets every year into a gamut of different things that benefit ducks and duck hunters in their local area. Uh, some chapters will decide to build these hen houses and then put them out, whether it be on public or private land. They cost about $40 each to build. They are steel, and so it requires someone who's got a steel cutter, a you know whether it be a torch or an actual saw, welding and things of that nature. And then um, here in California, the grass that you would stuff them with is Timothy grass. And then you stuff them out there, stick them out there in the marsh. And um, something folks can do is they can reach out to our biologist in our office and go through one of our Delta Waterfowl members or RDs, and we can help you get in touch with Matt in our office, who will then take a look at maps of the areas that you're going to want to put these out in. And he, through his experience over the years, can tell you uh, or suggest you, if you will, different areas that you could put those hen houses so that they're far enough away from one another, not to not to discourage another hen from right. nesting. And, uh, and then you give them a go. Now, we do recommend that if you're in an area that's never had these before, you're new to this, that you start out small. You know, don't don't go building 20 of these darn things and putting them out because there are situations and areas where we found they have not worked. But uh, for the most part, these have done very well. When we consider all that our chapters have built together with what Delta Waterfowl's employees have put out in super sites and whatnot around the Prairie Pothole region, we figure we've got about 15,000 of these out there. The beauty of a hen house is that they get mallards and other dabbling ducks up off the ground. And when we can do that, it, it can improve their nest success from as low as 0 to 15% in natural habitat on the ground to as high as 90% out of a hen wow. house, which naturally gives us more ducks. Yeah, you awesome. know, it's amazing. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. That's, well, that's one of the questions I had about as far as the yeah. success ratio of, you know, that compared to the ground versus up in the hen house. And that's, that's just phenomenal. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask myself. How long does it usually take? I mean, what have you noticed that when, um, how long does it take for a hen to actually start using that nest? You know, is it something that you see like maybe not the first year they ignore it, then maybe come back the second or third year and tend to use that more? You bet that's a great question because what we found is that hens can use these the very first year, but it can take upwards of five years for them to get used. And, oh, wow. you know, you may have to play with the direction that it's facing. You know, we're putting them out there on a square pole, so there's only four, generally speaking. And so there's only four directions that nest can face, uh, which in reality there's only two because they're open on both ends. Um, okay, so it's, it is the, – the display that you had 
was actually you guys are raising it off the ground. Absolutely, and, yeah, the, and it's because it is keeping from the predators. Is and the main you're reason. placing these in the water. Yeah, you're placing really? these in the water because you think about it. Uh, any any duck that has a nest has a brood has got to immediately. You know, they're only going to sit on the nest or stay in the nest upwards of twelve hours once the babies are hatched, and then they're headed for water. And mallards, as I learned a couple of weeks ago, are very territorial. They want a marshland to themselves, one mallard per marshland. So that's why I say it's really important that folks reach out to a professional, if you will, a professional biologist, that can help you to determine where to put these. I had no idea that mallards were so territorial, mm-hmm. but um, there was so much we, we learned that, that day out in the field with Dr. Frank Rohr our lead scientist and president of Delta Waterfowl. It was amazing. So, wow. But these hen houses are amazing. Uh, my son, years ago, when he was in high school, he built these as a Eagle Scout project, as well as two of his friends. Some of them worked. Some of them didn't. Uh, we changed locations. We, we did multiple things. Uh, the duck club back home in northern Utah that we placed these in was actually a club that has incredible grass cover which is not the best place to put a man-made structure because the birds are not having a hard time with nest success. You know what I mean? They're hidden really well. And as it turned out, this particular club and area is really heavy on goose production, not so much on ducks. And so naturally over time, uh, the club noticed that, that the goose nest structures were doing better, and so they replaced them. You know, it's, it's not good to leave anything sitting there that's not going to work. Right. So we took those out, and we're now trying them in other areas. Now, there's another area in Utah that has upwards of 200 of these hen houses. And on a wet year like this one that we've just had, uh, these hen houses can see 100% use. Okay, And when I say that, um, like with a wood duck box or, or anywhere else, a hen will return to the same location that she's had her nest previously successfully or very, very close to it. And so there have been years with some of these hen houses, that there will be a hen mallard on the inside sitting on her nest with another one on top of that same hen house waiting for her to get her butt out of there so she can get in there and lay, start laying her eggs. So are you seeing mostly mallards on these on these man-made hen houses? Are there other species getting in there too? or There are other species, but the primary one is it's mallards. mallards. Okay. Yeah. And I wondered uh, years ago why it was we focused so prolifically on mallards and uh, initially, I what I learned when I asked the question is that mallards were an easy, easy target. You know, they're an easy research target because they're m- the most prolific duck that we have mm-hmm. in the in North America, and so th- they were an easy one to choose and and find in great abundance. Do you think that's some something that would be almost even better for us here in California, since we, I mean, just in our opinion, you know, we see a lot of other species of ducks a lot more than mallards here. You know, is that something that would probably be better for us to do since to help our mallard population? I wonder the same thing. I actually have wondered the same thing. Um, I think personally we've got a handful of things going against us here in California, right? Right. Um, From what I understand from folks I've talked to, anyone who leaves water standing in a marshland or whatnot, uh, that's a mosquito building factory. You know what I mean? And if I understand correctly, the state can fly a plane over the top of that marsh mm-hmm. or swampland or whatever it may be and spray that to help control mosquitoes right. and send you a bill and do so without your permission. Mm-hmm. So that's that's an issue, but I don't know that's an issue going to go away. Uh, the other issue is brood water. You know, everybody emptying whatever they can uh, so that they save themselves money. There, you know, there's not enough brood water for mm. the ducks to go to. So wherever we put hen houses, we've got to have brood water nearby so that the ducks have a chance in heck mm-hmm. once they hatch of finding that protection, that mm-hmm. protection in the food. Plus, on top of that, without without water nearby, the the hen mallard can't get the invertebrates that she needs to eat mm-hmm. in the days leading up to building her first egg, and and the days thereafter. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, with, without her being able to build up her strength and the protein that she needs to be able to develop eggs, there's no nest anyway. So we've got a lot of things against us. 
you know, and, and, and as we're all hearing the last couple of years with the lower Klamath Falls being as dry as it is and, and really being last on the list to get water uh, as far as priorities up there, mm-hmm. we got to change that too. It's, uh, water's the problem right. here in California, right. and yeah, we totally. already know that. Yes. We have six. We hear it on yeah. the news every yes, day. absolutely. So, and, and we hear it on the news every day for other reasons, but for us as conservationists, yeah. it's, against it's, you. A, it's a problem. So mm-hmm. initially my thoughts were, gosh, hen houses should be and, and could be a real answer, but I think we've got other factors playing against us as well. But that doesn't mean that I would like to, wouldn't like to find some areas to try some in right. and s- do everything we can to employ and, and involve all of our professional resources to help mm-hmm. see them succeed. Now, I will tell you that um, in years past, folks may wonder why Delta Waterfowl hasn't had chapters here in California forever. Um, it's only been in the last year that I was allowed, if you will, to even think about starting a chapter here. And that's because of our great support and admiration of the California Waterfowl Association. And that that support and, and admiration still exists. Nothing's changed. But it was just, it was time. You know, it was time to go ahead and see if our model might work here as well. And if we might add some positives to the landscape together with what they and Ducks Unlimited and others are, are doing here in California. Um, so in doing this, in, in order to, or, or in getting our first chapter started, you know, we're looking forward to the local investments that chapters can make and see if we can make a positive difference with these hen houses. But we are going to start small because what I was actually trying to get to is that years ago, and I don't know how long ago, it's been quite some time, Delta Waterfowl actually sent a hundred or more hen houses out here to the CWA to give a try. And I don't know how long they left them in. I don't know where they put them. But uh, my understanding is that at the time they didn't work real well. Now, there are some that did. And, you know, it would be interesting to learn more about the ones that did and be able to duplicate what was done there, find areas that does have uh, brood water nearby, and be able to put a successful program together because – we, I've been coming here to California for, shucks, about 17 years uh, for work. My previous career brought me out here on a monthly basis, and being a waterfowler, I, I fell in love with Northern California years ago. And so I was able to, to see the drastic changes that took place as more and more fields were transplanted into, into trees and uh, mm-hmm. different, different um, orchard crops, if you will. So we've got some interesting challenges facing us but we also have a huge positive which is that some years ago we were forced here in california uh, by law if i'm not mistaken to stop burning rice fields and start flooding them and by so doing i mean it didn't cost anybody anything if i'm not mistaken to flood those fields and by flooding those it has created a just a haven if you will for waterfowl that didn't exist before when those rice fields were burned and opportunities up the gazoo for for farmers to be able to host hunters and duck clubs and on and on and on. So there's all sorts of positives that we still have in the valley, uh, up and down the the upper Sacramento Valley and whatnot. But you know it's not without its challenges. Yeah. <coughs> I hope I answered your questions with the hen houses and whatnot. Totally. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. You, you covered. I think every base. I that orchard thing is definitely that's a huge one. I don't. You, I know about that, but I don't think about it. You know, that's a huge factor. And it, what that does, too, is it takes a lot of water. So not only if we're short of water, which we're not this year, obviously, but, you know, that's been – I know they've talked about that a lot and how much, how many gallons each tree takes. And it's insane. You know, all the places that used to be row crops are now, you know, they're trees and stuff like that. So, so I want to throw out one thing while we're talking about orchards here. Uh with my previous career, I flew a lot. With my current job, I drive a lot. But I still once in a while will fly into California. And I'm always peering out the windows once we cross the Sierras and looking down at the landscape, if you will. And with you, Titus, being a helicopter pilot in the agricultural field, um, I would challenge you to pay attention, too, as you have an opportunity, if you will, to fly over these orchards. Because it's not only the water that these trees are taking, which any mm-hmm. crop needs water. Uh, something to also notice 
especially if you can get a, a field of some kind that is, is any other crop besides an orchard. If you take a look at them side by side, there is no grass cover whatsoever no, no. No. around an orchard. You know, no. and, and immediately I see it in your eyes and you're like, mm. yes, mm. There, there's no grass cover around an orchard. So when you, when you get rid of all these other crops, whether it be rice or barley or hay or whatever it may be, doggone it, you're losing all your nesting cover, yeah. 100% yeah. of it. And unfortunately, these orchards, I, I mean, it, it, people in our livelihoods got to come first, heaven's sakes. It, it always has, unfortunately. But um, when you look at where these orchards are placed, it's near a water source. Mm-hmm. It's near a water source. It's near what could be great brood water. You know, it's funny. We, Me and Tyus talk about that. Like uh, my job, I, I drive quite a bit too, and I'm always looking around. And whenever I happen to f- uh, pass a uh, a wheat field, I notice a lot of times mallards are f- either flying in or flying out, or the, the the sound of my truck spooks them and they fly or take off. And there's usually little ditch banks with water in it, you know, canals, whatever this and that. But they're just like you're saying. There's so many more orchards now compared to fields, whereas there'd be most likely ducks in those wheat or alfalfa fields or whatever it is, too, we lost all of that. We have. We have. I mean, heaven's sakes, one of our chapters is up in Oroville, and so anytime I go up and visit them, you know, it's right up the 99, and there's there's no view off the road because it's all orchards. Oh, yeah. Now, yep. orchards aren't, you know, they're, they're, necess- they're necessary, right? Right. They're mm-hmm. necessary. It's a, it's a crop that produces almonds and mm-hmm. walnuts and on and on and on. Back right. home where I'm from, it's, it's beaches and cherries. Yeah, but, we have a lot of that, too, around here. Yeah. One, like, and he said, and that, well, I, was, I was just about to say it before he did, but, like, they won't cut wheat here. Cause you know it's golden brown. I mean, I mean it's well, not even golden. I shouldn't say brown because it's like gold. I mean, it looks literally that's how gold colored it looks. They won't cut it. Still, it's still not cut. Some of it is, but they still haven't cut it, and they probably won't cut it for another three weeks, which would take them well past the the hatching and getting out of their phase, right? Actually, it there are some ducks that will renest. You know, they'll actually have too. a successful nest, and some that'll that'll fail. You know, their first nest will be destroyed, and they'll they'll be able to go out and find that seasonal water that's high in invertebrates, and and they'll be able to get the protein that they need to lay another another uh, nest. And the reason I thought about that is because I was I was spraying right by a wheat field, and I looked down, and I thought they couldn't fly. Maybe I thought they were young enough, but they were definitely the. The duck, I say ducklings, but they were pretty much almost full grown. But I could tell they were all, they were the young ones. It would be like the mom. And then you see, because they're still colored right now, the mm-hmm. drakes. And they they finally took off and it was like nine of them, like tight. So I know it wasn't just nine separate ducks. It had to have been that year's, you know. Yeah, hatch. absolutely. That's their duck. The duck pretty neat. From but year. it was coming, they're coming right out of the wheat. Yeah, mm-hmm. right Absolutely. out of those ditch banks and the canal, and they were swimming around the canal and messing around. So yeah, I never thought. You know, that. I got to tell you while we're while we're talking about baby ducks coming in and out, one of the one of the struggles we've always had in our field, if you will, the professionals in our field, is getting accurate brood counts, right? And one of the things that Delta Waterfowl is studying, and this wasn't really one of the things we talked about talking about but i'm just going to mention it really quick because with you being a helicopter pilot and seeing it from your point of view with drone technology the way it is these days we are we are finding some amazing or i should say getting some amazing results with doing brood counts with drones with thermal cameras as well as an actual camera on there so we'll be able to go out and uh one of our graduate students we've got a couple of them working on projects right now from what i read about and they'll be able to go out and pick marshes of whatever size and multiple marshes and be able to fly drones over and they don't disturb ducks you know like like humans would going out and beating through the cattails and whatnot because as you can imagine as soon as a person enters a marsh what are those ducks going to do they head straight for cover you know and it's impossible to count them all but with drones we're finding that we can get a much more accurate count of just how many ducklings are on a pond and what species they are. So me personally, and I might be grabbing for straws here. I'm I'm just saying this is Jeff Adams. I'm hoping that 
with modern day technology with drones and whatnot, we will one day be able to have better counts of different species, if you will, that will positively affect our bag limits. Okay. okay. Uh, now that's just me. That, that's just Jeff Adams. I'm not speaking on behalf of Della Waterfowl in saying that. I'm hoping that as a duck hunter. Mm-hmm. So, and maybe I shouldn't say that where I'm sitting here being interviewed as no, the waterfowl, no, but it, as long as everyone, t- yeah, it's and total it speculation. Sense. Yeah, it makes sense. I think that would be super. I think that's cool. what we all would like to hear. Well, I know that's kind of crazy. I mean, here in California, we have a more liberal mallard uh, bag limit, but we don't seem to have them, you know, everywhere here in the state. I know no, up north, it's there's a little bit more action as far as that goes, but. And then you go back east, and the bag limits are a lot lower than ours. You know what I mean? They are. So it's kind of, it's like kind of crazy how how that how that's decided, you know. And just as based on, I don't know what they base that on. Are they basing that on numbers, or what actually comes down, or you know? They are. They are. They're uh, much like California, uh, as I've learned the last couple of years. When you hunt in a refuge or a state-owned marsh complex here in California, you actually have to return to the check station where you checked in, Mm -hmm. and there's a biologist there that's randomly going to check your birds. Mm -hmm. He'll give them all back to you. Mm -hmm. I I think that they might hold on to one once in a while for science purposes if need be, but uh, through that, they're able to get bag results, if you will, and produce numbers uh, as to what your bag limits were right. in different parts of the state, right? Mm-hmm. Like down south in Southern California, I think the Spoonies were one of the biggest ones shot down south this last year, if mm-hmm. I'm not mistaken. But, yeah, you're you're absolutely correct. Um, no one really has the answer for the Atlantic Flyway and what's going on with their mallard production. Crazy. Uh, as folks might be aware, Delta Waterfowl started tracking ringnecks out of Georgia, Last year, and then uh, this year was our second year of doing this, and we did a, a lot more. In fact, we banded, or, or not banded, excuse me, put some satellite trackers inside of ringnecks in, and I will bring this back around to mallards, uh, put these satellite trackers inside of some ringnecks in Georgia and also South Carolina, and many of them were harvested early on in the, in the late season, but many of them returned to their breeding grounds. And one of the one of the things we were curious about is where in the world are these going to to nest? And it's amazing to see them spread out from the far east regions of Canada all the way over into Alberta. Hmm. And yet they they all started out right there in the same marsh complexes in Georgia and South Carolina. So now that we're learning more and more about ringnecks, which is a major bird, if you will, a major species in the bag limits for East Coast hunters, uh, for Atlantic Flyway hunters, we're going to start looking into four of the other more common uh, birds in there or species in their bag limits, which off the top of my head, and I'm not going to get them all, I don't believe, but widgeon, green-winged teal, gadwalls, and mallards may be the other, I don't recall. Black ducks, of course, are critical out there. But uh, we're going to be looking into tracking some other species out there to help them as well. Now, here in the West, uh, I hope to be able to help where's needed out here as well. So as we learn more and more about challenges that we face here, you know, I, I keep saying it, but the lower, lower Klamath Falls, I can't help but think that that's a massive problem that everyone needs to be concerned about in order to help waterfowlers here in California, mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. really it's affecting hunters in Oregon and Washington as well. So I right. hope that we're able to join that fight, and I've actually yeah. got a call about that tomorrow. So, Jeff, you as a as a duck hunter, I'm not sure how long uh, you've been hunting and, and all that, but can you kind of go through maybe some of the highlights, if you will? I know you've, you've been in Delta Waterfowl for a while, and I'm sure you've been duck hunting for quite some time. I mean, can you share some stories with us about maybe some great hunts or, or recommendations to other guys that want to try some, you know, you know, go on maybe a, a duck hunting trip to Mexico or they want to go to the Great Lakes or they want to go to the Atlantic or whatever it is, whatever bird you're searching for. 
Um, you got any recommendations or some good good hunting stories on some things? I know you're. We already mentioned uh, swan hunting, which is definitely uh, something we want to look at. But I know um, it's always fun to hear guys talk about you know trips and birds they've and hunts that they've been on that you know you don't get here in California or guys back east don't get where they're from or you know well for us out here in the west i would dare say we'd all love to go to the east coast and shoot a black duck mm-hmm. yeah, right right well, i'd love to <laughs> do yeah. so would i holy cow that would be you so know, cool you know it's so funny too cuz we went to that hunt in wisconsin and the guys up there were like ah they're just stupid they're stupid birds you know that they're way uh, dumber than mallards, or or what did they what did they say? I thought they were saying the opposite of that. Or they're talking about how smart they are. That's whatever. No, no, yeah, you're right. They were saying mallards were stupid compared to black yeah. ducks. Yeah, but they they weren't very excited about them. No, no, yeah, they were because remember because remember Austin Rogotsky was like a black duck went right behind us like oh, twenty yeah. yards. Remember we were all freaking out. Well, maybe I'm could have we were I'm sitting all out up. there Lake Michigan on this little island then, and we could have shot a black duck. Back doors us like twenty yards away. None of us seen it. We're looking this way. We could have shot a black duck. Oh, they were freaking out. Like, yeah, and that, you definitely got that one backers because they were mm. they were losing their mind to them. Old squaw, that's cool. Whatever, you know. Yeah, but, it's all in what what birds you shoot, right? That's why we always go crazy over mallards because it's not every single day where we're in mallards thick. You know what I mean? But spoonies and teal, we could. Shoot all day long with their eyes closed, <laughs> and, the, and the only ones that hate spoonies are the people in that California. Are covered up in them, and Utah, and uh, and you guys are too. Oh yeah, having sex. <laughs> yeah, and I've I've got co coworkers that I tease on a monthly basis. I'll send them pictures them. of a sexy spoonie, and, <laughs> and uh, they they just lose their minds. They'll send them out to their committee members, and man, they would love right. to shoot They're a spoonie dying for like them. that. Oh, you but know yeah, what's so we, funny? We we do everything we can to hold back. Going, mm-hmm. oh my gosh, do I really have to shoot Hollywood again? <laughs> <laughs> and that's the thing is, I'll, I'll do it on purpose because it gets people all wound up. You'll see it in the comments. Like I'll put a vid- a picture up of uh, on Instagram of a just a spoonies in there. Oh man, that's a dream bird. This and then the and you don't they don't say they're from California, but you know they are because you why are you putting this up? Bunch of trash for you know and I just love to see just get people all wound up. Yeah, but you know what? Then you talk to folks because for from where I'm from, we have a handful of woodies, but we don't have a lot. And you talk to people in the like south, Georgia. yeah, exactly. They, who complained like, because they just shot a limit of woodies? <laughs> really? Yes, How the right. heck would that be? Uh, yeah. What How, in the what, world? What are you complaining about? Yeah, man? what are you Come complaining on. about? Goodness gracious! The best taste in birds and there you most go. beautiful. You know? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. let's. Uh, we're already sitting up fifty minutes, and that's all right. But uh, let's jump into swan hunting. Okay, swan hunting. Tell us about it, Jeff. Well, swan hunting can be a lot of fun, doggone it. There's nothing like seeing a tundra swan a seven forty seven. A seven forty seven fall from the sky and hit the water, man. It's <laughs> it's awesome. It's super cool. So, uh in my mind there are seven states, but uh before I came over tonight I knew you were gonna ask me about swan hunting, so I looked it up and there's actually eight states in the lower forty eight that get to have a swan hunt, a tundra swan hunt. And I'm fortunate enough to be from Utah, and we're one of them that has those. And, uh, I, I mean, it's incredible. It's it's great. We have only had 2,000 tags in the state of Utah. Uh, we had a small increase this year. And it can take us upwards of three years to draw a tag back there. Uh, some folks claim that it's even longer than that. But on average, I'd say it's every two to three years a fella can draw a tag. It's only one bird, but yet right here to the— to the east of you folks in Nevada, you can actually draw one, if I'm not mistaken, and then buy another one over the counter if you've already had one. I believe is how their program works, but it's a it's a little tougher there to to get your bird than than it would be where I'm from. What's the so, what's the success ratio there in Utah? Uh, you I mean, know, you what? can do it. Yeah, it's it should be super simple. Give it, now you might you might not want to do this. That's okay. You don't have to, but but it should be that get, way in any you, state that you, you get them. Yeah, can you give us a little example how you call them? <laughs> all you gotta do is you say might have who. To, who, who, literally, who. yeah, that's just all you loud. gotta do. Yeah, yep, just who, 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 and that, and they come right and in. They that. not all the time, but yes. I mean, how smart? Are, I mean, obviously they're smart. I'm sure, but they get wiser as the season goes okay. on. Yeah. Okay, yeah, but they're <laughs> they're not near as wise as the ducks and geese that we love. Really? No heavens, no. 
And no. what, do you, what do you think that is? Just because they're not hunted as hard? Absolutely. You betcha. They're used to landing next to folks, and they're like a doggone coot. You know, they're not used to getting shot at, right? <laughs> That's hard to believe. But we should all start thumping coots because we've hopefully well, all coot, seen the, the video. The coots are getting smarter on here. Okay, I don't want to jump off the swan <laughs> topic, but are you for the coot, the coot killing? Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think people under I think and I've tried to spread it out there and put those that vid, that shoot vid, that a, coots yeah shoot coots I all got, you can I made a shirt it's called Scare them coot little shooter <laughs> coot <laughs> it shooter. has a big old coot I love it but anyways <clears throat> Delta Waterfowl is the one that did that video right yes. with that coot coming in and destroying those eggs you betcha so yeah and that was a canvas back nest if you guys haven't seen it yeah these coots are destroying a canvas back nest and uh. Um, harassing a hen canvas back. Not true. Right. And and we know for a fact that ain't no way that's the only one. No, you know no. what I mean. We know that's just probably going on on a daily basis. The thing is, it's just the fact of putting the shells into that. But man, alive! I mean, you. But I don't know. There's a fine line there that people hate on it. Like, what are you doing that for? It's like, man, if you knew what these these things were doing to the duck population, do they do they have a count? on the damage coots are actually doing, like they would, say, a raccoon? Not that I know of, but we know that they're a major predator to overwater Are they trying ducks. to find that out? Like, are they trying to actually... Off the top of my head, I don't know that that's one of the studies, kind of but... Yeah, but <laughs> they're definitely a problem. Yeah. So, let's get back to the swan hunting here. As much as we hate coots, we always end up talking about them somehow. <laughs> but back to the, the swan hunting, I mean, are you... So your success ratio is pretty good. Like, what's the season look like in Utah? How sh- is it pretty short? No, the the season in Utah begins the opening of the duck hunting season, which is the first weekend in October, and goes into the second week of December. The date varies a little bit. So there's there's plenty of time. You know, we do have some swans as our season starts in early October. There's always a person or two who harvest one um, in in that first weekend. Unfortunately, there's also people who can't tell the difference between a white pelican and a <laughs> swan, believe it or not. Oh. And that happens every year. Yeah. Every year. Yeah. It's a shame. It is a shame. Um, Especially but, that ticket they get, probably. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and the and the harassment. Yeah, that's going to be pretty bad. So, uh, so on the swan hunting, and Travis, if you have any questions, just jump in. But on the swan hunting... Um, are you putting out, I guess you're putting out decoys? Yeah, so you don't have to put out decoys. Believe it or not, folks have done anything from, you know, a floating decoy from Tingle Free, which is what I have. I've got several of them, many. Um, all the way How down much to those cost. One. Uh, I don't recall. It's been <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. I've got enough. That doesn't need Your to be, wife won't be listening. That to doesn't this. need to be <laughs> public <laughs> information. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they've. Yeah, you can anyway. go to their website, <laughs> tanglefree.com, to check right. that no, out. No, I'm looking this stuff. You keep talking. Yeah, I'll keep talking. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, you can go anything, believe it or not, from uh, white kitchen garbage bags. You just blow up with air, I've tie them that. off. Absolutely, they work. Uh, folks will make silhouette decoys for them, uh, all the way up to the nice floaters, if you will. But, um, then you've got folks who will line, as we call it, slaughter dike back home. You know, you've got a couple of areas that these darn swans are, are they pretty spendy? No, that's not that bad. 50, <laughs> they're on sale right now for fifty nine ninety nine. Yeah, but that'll sell in tonight. That's 30% off, cowboy. The 75 bucks. 75 bucks. That's not bad. For, for two. For yeah. a single? Yeah, but I mean, do you really for a single need... or two? It's for one. <laughs> but what I'm I saying think, is, I think I'll be going with uh, the and glad. I have eight. The glad. Of them. Oh, oh. <laughs> I'll be going with the glad 13 gallon. There you go. Well, no, but but what I'm saying is, come and hang out. And if Jeff's you're Excel. saying you can kill them without it, you can. Well, so, but are you saying is it nearly you, as fun? Right. No. Because the problem is, folks who are hunting these right from the dikes are unfortunately. Darn near shoulder to shoulder, like in Alaska. Oh, they are. You know, gosh, really? it can be it can be real sad. Okay. And so, you know, guys like me with boats will will do what we can to help folks who don't have a boat and help them get out there and actually shoot them over decoys. Now we can't do it every day, but we we do what we can. Folks are are pretty nice, you know, and I think that's just how we are in our in our community waterfowl or, community, mm-hmm. you know. But we like to help one another out and help us help other people have. An experience that they wouldn't have otherwise, but uh, you can certainly shoot them from shoot them from the dikes. 
if this is going to be something you put in for, uh, regardless of the state, whether it be North Carolina, North Dakota, South Dakota, Eastern Montana, you know, wherever it may be, even up in Alaska, I, I saw today that they get some tags. Wherever you're going to go to shoot your swan, you want to do your best, believe it or not, to get them on a sunshiny day because the juveniles, which are more gray in color, sure blend in a lot with the white ones that are adults. And you're not going to want to shoot a juvenile for your once-in-a-lifetime trophy right, that you're spending right. lots of money to travel for. So do your darndest to to try Pick to go to out. your destination on a sunny day so you can decipher between a juvenile and a, and a and an adult. And then um, do your best not to shoot them any further than 40 yards away. And don't even think you're going to kill one of these by shooting them in the body. you mm, got to get them in the neck shot. and the head. Yeah, yeah, mm. you got to get them in the neck What kind of shot are you using, Jeff, to, when you're hunting them? You know, I'd say two shot or bigger. Okay. So It's yeah. like a goose load. Yeah, just so a like goose load. Yeah. yeah. Mm. And uh, if, you're gonna, if you're just going to shoot them for the meat, you're not going to be too, too impressed with just how much meat's in them. I mean, really? they're... There's a little more than a Canada goose, out, you know, out here really? in the West, but not a ton, and not a ton. But their skin is super thick; it's crazy. Mm. Once you get one in your hand, you can easily see why you're not penetrating and killing them by shooting them through the breast. Do you see anywhere in my walls that I could put one? You know, they can have upwards of a six foot uh, <laughs> wing spread. So. <laughs> but I've not seen the blank spots out here on the wall. <laughs> so. Knowing you were going to ask me about swans, I, I wanted to tell you that the first time that my son and I ever drew tags, we actually shot them the first week of December, about 45 minutes apart, and we were in a layout boat on a refuge near our home. Oh, wow. Yeah, it was amazing. It was amazing. We only had four decoys, and then the rest were duck decoys at the time, and I think those four were, were even borrowed from a friend. But gosh darn, that was a kick, getting them to come in, you know, 15, 20 yards off the water and and banking and shooting them from a layout boat. So, wow. yeah, that was amazing. That is awesome. Yep. Well, um, if you guys don't have any more uh, swan questions, um, I did. Want, I, I prepped you for this. I've been trying to do this for the guests now. Thomas kind of came up with this one uh, to end on this note as what, what, what was your craziest or most awesome duck hunting experience memorable. or story? Most memorable, craziest, whatever you want. If it could be crazy, memorable, it could be... What is it? Well, mine, uh, I understand that you guys here in the grasslands love shooting uh, dabbling ducks, right? Mm -hmm. Well, where I come from, we're fortunate to have a mixture of, of everything. Great divers, great dabbling ducks, everything. I would say my favorite and craziest hunt I've had was actually in a layout boat out on the Great Salt Lake with some friends one day, one evening. And I don't know what it was, but, man, you needed a fly swatter out there to keep the ducks off you. Everything from from Hollywood to green wing till to a cinnamon till that was landed so close to the boat you couldn't even shoot it without just blowing it apart, you know. And Gadge, <laughs> uh, we had buffalo heads up the gazoo, golden eyes. It, it was just, it was insane. We could not change hunters out of the boat fast enough. It was wow. We, we wouldn't be 50 yards away from, from the layout boat, and there were swarms of ducks going into the layout boat again. You wow. just could not load fast enough to get your seven ducks. But if a couple of my buddies happen to listen to this, they'll they'll sit back and recall this exactly like I am. They'll remember the sunset and the you whole You can see it all right now. Oh, man, it's sick. It's, right. it's madness, you know. Yeah. In fact, we were limited out with 20 minutes to go, and we just, yeah, I was the last one in the boat. So you kind of have a tinder boat. Yeah, you have off, a tender boat. Yeah. It, it's just, layout just, boat hunting, just like, just the, like the Great okay. Lakes. Yeah, okay. only we don't use the the same style per se. Of our layout boats are more of a lower profile, even lower than use. it would be like like Michigan. Absolutely, or a lot lower because okay. we don't have the waves that they do. Okay, is it so. absolutely calm on on the Salt Lake? Sometimes on this particular night, yeah, it was quite calm. Okay, but it can get ugly too. Oh, okay. yeah, we. We lose duck hunters there about every two or three years because they'll venture out there in a boat that they shouldn't with too many people in the boat and oh. whatnot. And unfortunately, you know, like we hear too often, they'll they'll get killed. How far wow. how far is that across? This like the to the from the Longs Point, just to guess. I really have Long no ways. clue, but it is monstrous. Yeah, yeah, folks that have never seen it. I mean, it's one thing to see it from the air when you fly into yeah. Utah for business and wonder to yourself why would anyone live here. <laughs> Keep up that thought. Um, <laughs> but it's a total different uh, thing to give Jeff Adams a call or someone else and go for a ride out on Antelope Island and, and look both ways. It's it's just insane. Overwhelming. Yeah, it's, it's incredible. 
yeah, we get some ducks there occasionally that have no business being there. Hmm. And you know what? You asked earlier, too. i got to go back and touch on um, on the hunts that you had suggested. I don't have dream hunts myself to go on. I, I love experiences, not really bucket list type things. But we were talking about how we'd like to go for black ducks. Folks want to come out here west for Cinnamon Till, right? Mm-hmm. People, I mean, we're, we're where you come for Cinnamon Till. So mm-hmm. a- anything and in between, you know, we've, we're blessed to have, I'd say, every species here in the Pacific Flyway except for black ducks. Hmm. So you, yeah, you guys might be sending a little, well, you don't want to say that because we don't want to give away. <laughs> it's terrible there. Don't ever go to Utah. So, anyways, um, I think we covered Travis. Do you have anything else that you wanted to any questions? But <laughs> what's funny is Jeff isn't even from Utah. <laughs> We're just using that as the decoy. Aha! <laughs> we got everybody. <laughs> he's from <Go> uh, Nevada. <laughs> he's from Kalamazoo. <laughs> yeah. So, anyways. No, guys, thanks for listening in. We appreciate it. We just had our Delta Waterfall chapter meeting uh, tonight and asked Jeff, and I appreciate you, Jeff, for coming over here and taking the time and wearing your voice out just a little bit more. And, I bet uh, it was an honor. Yeah, it, it was a good time, and definitely we're going to do this again one of the times here in the future. And, guys, if you're do, if you interested and you're in California want to come to the banquet, I'm going to put in the show notes uh, down in the description on iTunes and any other platform a link to that you can click on to go buy tickets uh, for it. It's going to be October 12th. Uh, doors will open at 5.30, and we're starting to sell tickets now, so it's a limited basis. So if you're interested, you can also email me at midvalleymercenaries at gmail.com or message me on Instagram or Facebook. So anyways, guys, thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Thomas, for being here. Absolutely. Wouldn't miss it for the world. <laughs> <laughs> Travis? <laughs> Let's yeah, hear your I'm voice. Away. I can talk really loud. He <laughs> he can't move the mic uh, ten he, inches. He's getting mouth, a little so. old, you know. Yeah. And he, he's crippled falling, and he's falling asleep. His eyes are bloodshot. We gotta <laughs> get him to work. So, thanks again, Jeff, and thanks everybody for tuning in. We'll see you guys on the next one. <laughs> <laughs>